Corinthians believed, look, there's no God but one. They knew that an idol is nothing and that we all have this knowledge. So for whatever reason, some of the Corinthian Christians said, you know what? These idols are not real. Only God is the true God. So it doesn't hurt if I go partake of this meal because I know that the idol is nothing. It's just something that man has made and they put invested power in it by their own imagination. And so some Christians believed that the meat that was sold in the marketplace from the temples, they knew the idol was nothing. So they thought, hey, there's no reason not to buy this meat. It was offered to a a, a false deity. And so I know God is one. He's the one true God. And so I can eat it by not defiling myself. But in the same community of believers, there were some believers who could not disassociate the power of the idol from the meat. And so when they went to the marketplace and they saw the idol or they saw the meat that had been dedicated to the idol, they could not disassociate the power from that. It still did something in them. And this religious context was always present at all of these meals. And so the problems then that Paul writes to are in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's, let's read through that chapter. It's only 13 verses. We want to get the feel for what he's saying. And then we're going to unpack it. How do we, how do we apply that to our own lives? Now, about food sacrifice to idols. And Paul says in verse 1, now, what he's saying is he had a, a request from the Corinthians that they wanted answers to this problem. And so Paul throughout Corinthians, when he says now, he's now addressing another issue. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, and he's about ready to address a specific issue. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things come, and whom we live, and there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things come, and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way, you wound their weak conscience. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Paul is addressing this specific issue. How do these Corinthian Christians who are living in a very pagan society, how do they interact with these uh, things that were offered to idols? And so what he does is this term food sacrifice to idols is only is only a term found only in the New Testament. One exception outside the New Testament. And so apostolic uh, teaching forbids the eating of this food anywhere where it had been previously identified with an idol. Christianity requires a clean break with idolatry. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul says, For they themselves will report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The problem with the Corinthians was this. They said an idol is nothing, in verse 4. They said there is no God but one, 
in verse 4, that God is indifferent to food. It doesn't bring us closer to God or separate us from God. And so what he said was, these Corinthians were saying, we all possess this knowledge. This is another one of those slogans that the Corinthians live by. Last week, we looked at the slogan, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And Paul's like, no, 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 that's not how it works. Because he goes right in the next paragraph. He says, if you're married, you better be touching each other. So that's not how this works. And so and this is the same case where they say, well, we all possess knowledge. And therefore, what? We can do what we want to do. Because I know that an idol is nothing, and I know that food doesn't separate me from God, the true God or not, and so I am free to do whatever I want. And this is a theme that Paul is addressing through the book of Corinthians. Paul knew the difference between possessing knowledge and being possessed by it. And we all know people who are a little too smart for their own good, and they want to let you know how smart they are, and they want to enforce their wisdom on everyone and everybody around them. And so Paul uses knowledge in that pejorative sense. It is a stark contrast between those who have the knowledge and those who have love. And so these temple-dining Christians who went by this philosophy, God is one, an idol is nothing, food doesn't matter, so I'm going to go to the temple and eat the meat. It's pretty good. You know, they serve it however you want it. Tastes good. I get the fellowship with some people. And Paul says, listen, you have that knowledge, and the problem is you think everybody else has that knowledge. Paul's addressing this myopic vision that we have sometimes of our own lives. It is very difficult to see others around us when we have a view of something, and it's hard to see that others may have a different view. We just think everybody thinks like we do. Why wouldn't they? We're right. And if they don't think like I do, they're obviously wrong. And Paul, again, in this pastoral wisdom, is going to walk this pastoral line between these know-it-alls, and that's really who he's addressing, is the know-it-all. It's the, it's the person who knows, and they say, we all possess this knowledge, and so I can do what I want. And so what he says is, you temple-dining Christians should refrain from using your rights, being flaunting your rights, because it was causing destruction of weaker Christians. And so Paul, in the middle, he says, we know that God is one. It sounds like the Old Testament, doesn't it? Deuteronomy chapter 6, here are Israel, the Lord our God is one. Corinthians served many gods and had this religious pluralism. But the Jewish people, from the calling all the way back of Abraham, it was a monotheistic religion. It means there's one God. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it's a Christian view of God as the creator. There is only one true God. And so because he's one true creator, he is the source of all things. And so he was telling the Christians, yes, there is one true God. And so whenever Paul preached to pagan audiences, he always preaches against their idolatry. And this is a strong defense against any kind of, of animism in our lives or polytheism. Listen, we, we, there are um, different worldviews, and there are worldviews that will say that their God is in everything. He permeates everything. Or, God, there's energy things, right? You know, the rocks have some energy, and some of these have some energy. The biblical worldview preaches against all of those things. There is only one creator, God. He is imminent, 
but he is distinct from his creation. We are not to worship creation. We are not to look for power in creation. We look for power in the one true God. And so God, Paul says, our, our God is what? One. He is the one true creator God. Yes, we do know this. But now he's addressing these enlightened ones who had this information. And in verse 7, look what he says. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. There is a call for us in the body of Christ to be aware of other people, where they are coming from, what they know, perhaps what they don't know. Also, uh, just on, a, on a, a, a fellowship level, to know their hurts, fears, and loves, and all those things. That we just need to know where other people are, but it's so very difficult sometimes to get out of ourselves. Have you ever met people, it's all about them? Like, I don't think some people even know how to use a question mark. It is, let me tell you about me. Let me tell you about me. Never ask about you. Like, there is this little great thing called a question mark. And it's okay to ask people questions sometimes about them and to be interested in them, right? Give them a little breathing room. And that's all Paul's saying. He says, be careful. We don't, not everyone, he says, possesses, possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols. This would be those Gentile believers. The Jews would be totally not idolatrous. That was from the, the Judaism in the Old Testament. God is one. So these would be those, those Gentile believers who were accustomed to the idols in Corinth. And they became believers, and now they had to give up all those pagan practices, give up all the other gods, and they were still accustomed to these idols. We have these uh, memory tracks in our brains, and it's sometimes hard to rewrite those things. Remember, you're always told what happens. What should you never do with a ladder that's propped up against the wall? Tell me, what should you never do? Walk under it. Why? Bad luck. Now, we know there's no such thing as luck, bad or good. God is sovereign. But I'll bet some of you, to this day, do not walk under a ladder. Why? Because you're still so accustomed to the same. How many of you, when you knock the salt shaker over, do you take a pinch and throw it over your shoulder? Whatever shoulder you're supposed to do. Why? Bad luck. Now you know there's no such thing as luck. But you're so accustomed to this idea that if I knock the salt shaker over, I need to th- uh, toss some so I don't have bad luck. What do we do? We just do it. I've seen people do it. And maybe you do that. That's all Paul's saying with these idols. Just like you're accustomed to not walking under the ladder, like you're accustomed not to, uh, uh, to do the salt, uh, uh, step on a crack, break your mother's. If you don't like your mother, you're finding every crack you can find. And what do we do? We're so accustomed to these things. That's all Paul's saying. Paul's saying these Gentile converts still have this, and we can understand where they're coming from, and we can look at them and say, well, why would you think that? Well, we think the same things about many, many things. And so these enlightened believers, Paul is saying, you need to be conscious of this, because why? Because the ones who don't possess this knowledge, their conscience is weak. This isn't morally weak. It doesn't mean that they're sinners and that they're not able to do right and, or do the right things. But what it means is that there's this inner uh, awareness of the power of an idol. Their conscience is weak. Just like your conscience is weak when you don't walk under a ladder or throw the salt or don't step on a crack. That's all Paul's saying is our conscience is weak in those ways 
their consciences were weak because they're so used to worshiping idols, it was hard for them to break the power that that had over their lives. Can they know that an idol is nothing? Yes. Don't we all know things? But when it comes to practicing, it's very difficult. It just is. And that's where these believers are. And so what he says is, he says, you need to be careful because, it, because their uh, conscience is weak. It is defiled. Verse 8, food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. He's saying there's not this closeness we get to God by, by uh, eating certain foods. And there's not a closeness we get to God by abstaining from certain foods. You can pretty much eat whatever you want. It's not going to affect you spiritually is what Paul's saying. However, if the meat's been offered to idols, then that addresses something else. And so the enlightened Christians were the ones that were flaunting their knowledge. And let me ask you, where does the burden lie? We have the know-it-alls, and we have those with the weak conscience. And where does Paul place the burden? On the know-it-alls. And most often, the know-it-alls place the burden on the person with the weak conscience. Because they say, I am free. I can do whatever I want. And you're not going to tell me not to do something. And so I'm going to do it. And Paul is addressing the know-it-alls. He's not putting the burden on the weak person. He's putting it on the person who possesses the knowledge. Because he says, look, we all don't possess the knowledge. Not all of us know the things that you know. And so what he says is, he uses this freedom. And so what he in verse 9 says, Be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. And so this stumbling block does not refer to any practice or belief that happens to offend a believer. we got to understand this. These, this. This whole thing about the stumbling block is religious in nature. It's a stumbling block is not, you just don't like something I'm doing. That's not a stumbling block. What does Paul say? Paul says that this will destroy that person. This is going to do something to that person spiritually. In fact, he talks about them being destroyed, ruined, damaged. It shows how someone with incorrect actions can come from correct knowledge. And sometimes we have correct knowledge, but it leads to incorrect actions. And we have to be very careful because we have used this scripture. We're going to overlay Paul's words in Romans in just a minute. But we have used these scriptures and we said, well, I don't want to upset anyone. That's not what Paul's talking about, the stumbling block. Just because you're offended by what I do, that's not a stumbling block for you. You need to get over it. You have no right not to be offended. That's just how it works. However, we have to uh, be careful with the exercise of our rights so they don't destroy someone. And that's where the key is, is to destroy their spiritual life, to destroy their relationship. It appears that Paul has no problems with a Christian who understands that God is one dining. He doesn't have a problem with them dining at the temple dining room. But what he does have a problem with is if you are dining at the temple dining room, that you are destroying a brother or sister for whom Christ died. Because the weak brother or sister is going to be emboldened then to eat the meat. And while they're eating the meat, it's like you dragging that person under the ladder. Come on, it's nothing, it's nothing, it's nothing. And what you're doing is you're doing something inside of them, right? There's this thing about, about eating this meat offered to an idol. And so this graphic word Paul uses in verse 12 is wound. He says, you are wounding a brother or a sister. And then he says, Paul says, I'm going to give you this personal example. Of all the people who has a right to do something, I'm the one who has a right to do it. But you know what? I'm not going to do it. 
He said, I would rather never eat meat again, so I will not cause them to fall. And the word, that word for fall is to destroy them spiritually. It's to destroy them, their relationship with God. That's what the stumbling block is. It's, it's, it's that thing that's going to do something inside of them. So the most common application of this chapter in Romans chapter 14 is that um, we usually apply it to not to anti-Christian beliefs or rituals, but we will apply it to activities that can lead to access, that can lead to sin, but don't necessarily have to lead to sin. And so we've used this passage to apply it to things like drinking alcohol or smoking or buying lottery tickets or the clothing that we wear or the music we listen to. Those things, can they can lead to excess. They can lead to sin. And so we generally apply this passage to those kinds of things. But what we have to remember is that is our cultural view of what Paul is talking about. You know, many parts of the world... The American evangelical discomfort with alcohol is unheard of. They're like, what? What do you mean you don't drink wine? We do all the time. It's a cultural thing. It is not a thus saith the Lord thing. In the former Soviet Union, it is scandalous for evangelical women to wear makeup. Why? Because it's culturally conditioned. In some parts of of Africa and in the tropics, it is scandalous if the preacher does not show up in a white shirt and a tie in 100-degree weather because Western missionaries at some point came and said, this is what you need to wear to church. This is not what Paul's talking about. He's not saying if the preacher does not want to wear a tie that that's a stumbling block. That's not what Paul's talking about. In fact, he's going to be much more comfortable if he takes his tie off. Now, if somebody in the congregation doesn't like it, that doesn't, that's not causing them to fall. They're just overly opinionated. And they're wanting their preference to be the rule instead of God's word. Just because you don't like something doesn't mean you can claim from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, you're causing me to stumble. And I, no, 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 no. We have to be very careful. Because what it is, it's, that it's, a, it's a stumbling to wound. Do you understand the difference? Many times, and you have been there, and I have been there, and everybody's got an opinion about what we should wear to church and about what we should be sitting on and what color the carpet should be. And just because you don't like it doesn't mean it's a stumbling block. It could be pride. It could be preference. It could just be sin of the flesh. It could be all those things. Or it could just be, you know what? We think differently on things. That's okay. And that's not what Paul's talking about. So what is he talking about? Let's pull out some principles for us. The first principle is this. What is safe for one believer may not be for another. We need to to understand this. Romans 14, look what the verse says. I have it on your notes. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Whew! Won't that revolutionize the kingdom? I don't care what you wear to church. I don't care what, right? He said, instead, make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing, listen, nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. Unclean is what? Sacrificial meat. It's the thing that was offered to idols. There's a spiritual component. Now listen, the meat, and Paul's going to talk about that later in chapter 10, 
If you are, go to somebody's house to eat, you just eat what's put before you without raising issues of conscience. But once you know, then if this cause does something to you, now we have now that's a difference. Listen, we live in a we live in a culture where everything is unclean now. Do you know you're not even supposed to have turkey this Thanksgiving? Because of the carbon footprint of producing that turkey, it's contributing to global warming. You're not even supposed to travel this weekend, this week. So if you are traveling this week, you are destroying the planet. You are not supposed to have turkey. You're not supposed to travel. We live in that kind of a world now where everything is wrong and everything is bad. Listen, just because it's unclean for you doesn't mean it's unclean for me. I'm getting in my car and I'm driving 500 miles to have a big old turkey. And if you don't like it, boo-hoo on you. I am not wounding you. I am not causing you to stumble. I am not causing you to lose your eternal salvation. You just don't like it. And that's what Paul's saying. But what he's saying is what is safe, spiritually safe, may not be for another. So what he does is he has this two-pronged solution. There is freedom to eat in principle... There's no, if there's no anti-Christian implications involved. So in other words, if, this, if I know this practice is not inherently against God's word, I'm free to do it. That's his, that's his approach. However, if there is, there is somebody who will be wounded, then I have to be careful. Because for them, it is a spiritual issue. Remember, we're out of the realm of preference, and we're out of this realm of I just don't like it. It is a spiritual issue. Is this thing really going to cause you to walk away from the Lord? I mean, is this thing really going to cause you to give up your faith in Jesus? That's kind of the things that Paul's talking about. And so I have to remember that what is safe for one believer may not be safe for another. And if it isn't safe for the other, then the know-it-all, that person who knows, should voluntarily abstain and give up their freedom. So this meat that was offered to an idol, I voluntarily don't eat it. Because I know, again, that for some folks, there's an inherently spiritual element to this. Now Paul gets to the heart of the matter. True discernment requires love as well as knowledge. Look what he says in verse 2, or at the end of verse 1. Knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Paul says true discernment requires love as well as... In fact, in Romans 14, he says, If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. What is that? That spiritual connection again. Now listen. Paul says to the know-it-alls, to those who know, it's one thing to know, but it's another thing to love. And you know what love is? Love is doing the best for the other person. That's what love is. Love is doing the best for the other person, making the choice that will benefit the other person. Paul says idols and idol foods are harmless. What's so wrong about participating in the ceremonies and dining at the temple? And what Paul is saying is Christians should show their knowledge of the truth. Uh, The Christians in Corinth were saying, well, we should show that we know by going to these events. And what I'm doing is I'm flaunting my knowledge because these idols can't harm me because they're nothing at all. So the, these, these know-it-all believers are like, I know, my knowledge is puffing me up. I'm going to go eat at the temple. And Paul's like, no, 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 wait. There's something bigger at stake here, and that's love. What about those whose consciences are weak 
and who think those idols are something. You're not acting in love at that point. You're just basing everything on your knowledge. The understanding of what it means to be a Christian, listen, it is not our knowledge that distinguishes a Christian. Rather, we are identified by our love. Jesus said, the world will know you by what? How much you know. No, by what? Your love for one another. The distinguishing mark of a believer is not how much we know, but how well we love. That's just scriptural. That's just what, that's what God says over and over. I have seen some of the most knowledgeable Christians be the most unloving people on the planet. They have some knowledge and they, they want you to know about it. And they are, they're just mean and they're nasty and they're going to get their point across. And they don't care who they hurt. They don't care how they talk. They don't care who they put down. And they just know that they know and they want you to know. And if you don't know, well, shame on you. And there's no love. Now, I can't believe that God is happy with that. In fact, he's not. It's what does he say? We are identified by our love. So Paul is, is it, what he's doing is he's calling them to a responsible freedom disciplined by love. That's what our, that's really what the theme is. It's responsible freedom disciplined by love. Faith demonstrates its real presence by the way that we love one another. Gordon Fee said this, Christian behavior is not predicated on the way of knowledge, which leads to pride and destroys others, but on the way of love which is, in fact, the true way of knowledge. In Christian ethics, knowledge must always lead to love. That's Christian ethics. I know something, and now how does that lead me to love you? How does that lead me to be more loving? How does that lead me to be more Christ-like? So the Christian ethic isn't knowledge, but our knowledge needs to lead to Love And what's Paul say? Paul said our knowledge, we need to be also have knowledge of the people around us, a knowledge of where they are, a knowledge of where they are spiritually. Love limits freedom. Isn't that true in marriage? Love limits freedom. When you are married in a marriage covenant, that love, the love you have for one another, limits what you do in, in that marriage or outside of that marriage. And some of you have been terribly hurt by love, by uh, freedom that was not limited by love, that people have done things outside, outside of love. Why? Because it was, it was in their self-interest and not in the interest of, of, of the other person. Love always limits freedom. It just does. When your kids are little, you love them, hope you love them, or did love them. You didn't say, you know what? I'm going to take a two-week vacation. I'm just going to leave the kids home by themselves. They're three and they're four. They'll make out fine. Is it my freedom to go? Well, not necessarily. There's some laws involved. But we see how we do that. Well, I, I can do I can do this. But love says, no, this isn't the best thing for me to do. My freedom is always limited by love. How I treat other people, how I talk about other people or don't talk about other people. Love is always the defining boundary. By your knowledge not your love, you, Paul says you are doing eternal harm to fellow believers. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, okay, know-it-alls, your knowledge is harming other people. How, how many times have you been harmed by somebody's knowledge? I mean, it just comes, it's just abrasive, and it is, it, it's sometimes hurtful, and, it, it, and that's what these Corinthians were doing to one another. They had the knowledge, but it wasn't restrained by love. 
And if love seeks the best for the other person, what that means for my knowledge is sometimes it just needs to stay up here, not come out here. (laughs) Knowledge in your head is always knowledge. But when you let it cross your lips, sometimes it becomes foolishness. And so Paul says what? We are limited by our love. The third thing that we do then is believers are to forego freedoms that are spiritually detrimental to other believers. Paul says in Romans 14, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God. Here we are, the spiritual thing, right? Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. This is that gray area of life. And we have to be very careful for two reasons. We don't make everything black and white. There's a lot of things in the Christian life that are not black and white. I'm not talking sin. I'm not talking morality. I'm not talking where less saith the Lord. But should you mow your grass on Sundays or not? Well, just because another believer doesn't like you mowing your grass on Sundays, if you have no qualms about mowing your grass on Sunday, mow your grass on Sunday. And then rake it. And then do some weed trimming. And then do some things. Just because another believer doesn't think you should mow your grass on Sunday, that other believer, it, they, you are not wounding their relationship with God if you mow your grass on Sunday. Now, they may be having a little pity party. They may be <laughs> whatever, but you're not destroying them, okay? Those, those gray areas in life, what we have done through the years is we said, well, I know Brother Joe doesn't like people mowing grass on Sunday, so I'm not going to mow my grass on Sunday. Well, what happens is now I am foregoing something that is my right for something that is none of Joe's business. And we, have to, we, have to, we need discernment for these things. And through the years, I have seen Christians intentionally and sometimes unintentionally wound other Christians. <gasps> I saw you mowing your grass on Sunday. You better repent, brother or sister. What good does that do? Your, now your knowledge is destroying another person for love. See how we do that? We have to be very, very discerning before we open this yapper. Is it motivated by love? And if I am in a place where I am doing something that's spiritually detrimental to other people, I forego those rights. When we were in Taiwan uh, years ago, uh, one of the customs in Taiwan is when someone dies, um, they mourn and they have they set fireworks off and they block the street off and they put flowers up. I mean, it's a, it's a whole huge deal. And so one of the ways that they do this is they give uh, white is the color of mourning in Asia. Red is their celebration color. White is the color of mourning. So you give a white envelope to uh, someone with some money and it. it's, it's to help them out with the funeral. So what Ted, the missionary at the, at the orphanage, does, he wants to participate in that, but he understands the spiritual ramifications of this. He will not have any dragons anywhere. He will not have any hint of dragons because of the mythology and the, the power that that has in Taiwan. So what Ted does is he will take a light blue envelope, put the money in, and give it to the neighbor. What he has done is he, for, uh, he gave up his right to, to use a white envelope. 
He could use a white envelope because he knows whatever whatever demons they're trying to scare away with the fireworks, whatever gods they're worshiping, all those things are... He knows that that's under the control of the one true God. And he could go give the white envelope. But what he does is he gives up his right to... So as he does not further uh, uh, harm these uh, not fellow believers, the people he wants to present the gospel with. So what does he do? He just makes an adjustment. And if we were more creative in the ways that we approach these things, we could do more of those things than by destroying each other because we don't like something somebody's doing. And we make laws and we make rules and we make them binding on everyone instead of out of love saying, what can I do in this situation? What, what can I, how can I love you in this situation? Paul says, Paul does not address the weak conscience believers, but he addresses these know-it-alls who are them, encouraging them to eat. Gordon Fee says, in saying that the brother is destroyed, Paul is most likely referring to eternal loss, not simply some internal falling apart because one is behaving contrary to the dictates of conscience. The latter idea, he says, is altogether modern, and elsewhere in Paul, this word invariably refers to eternal ruin. Again, what Paul is talking about is eternal ruin. He's not talking about some person is agitated or offended by something I'm doing as a believer. I don't know about you, but I have a hard enough time getting myself in line, let alone everybody else. And what if we spent most of our energy focusing on getting ourselves in line? Wouldn't you think we'd be a whole lot better off? So just because I'm agitated because you're mowing your grass on Sunday, that concept in the New Testament was unheard of. We were not, it was not this all this feeling, feeling inside, all that kind of stuff. That's just not the world that Paul was writing in. And so it was, it was, eternal, it was eternal ruin. Fourth thing we can learn is this. Test your motives instead of your limits. What Paul says is this. Chapter 8 speaks to those gray areas of Christian living. Sometimes, Scripture makes an issue that is immoral. It says this is immoral. Adultery is always wrong. That is not a gray area. That is not one of these places that Paul is saying, you know what, that's kind of the gray area. No, it's always wrong. Alcohol consumption is wrong if it what, leads to drunkenness. And so what Paul is saying is that we have to test our motives and not our limits. In other words, we all, we kind of never really grow out of this. Kids are always pushing their limits. Remember the kids in the back seat and you had to separate them and you said there's a line in the middle of that seat. And if one of you crosses over that line, you're going to, whatever your mode of discipline was. And what do they do? They get, get right to that line, right? Testing the limits. Mom, Jesus across the line. But we do the same thing with each other. We want to see how far we can get. Because it's my right to do it. And it's, I know this idol is nothing. And I know this thing is nothing. And so we just want to, we want to get right up to the line. And Paul's saying, no. As, a, as the one who knows, it's not, we, we are not to test our limits, but we are to test our motives. Why am I doing this thing that I want to do that may cause a brother to be ruined? Why am I wanting to do this? That's what we need to ask ourselves. We need to ask ourselves what our motives are. He says, Galatians 5, you were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. That's what Paul says. 
in Romans 14. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself. In other words, the one you're blessed. If you can eat the meat, fine. You're not condemning yourself. But whoever has doubts is condemned because their eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. We should never ask, how far can I go? But we always ask, what are my motives in the first place? If I know that Brother Joe doesn't like people mowing grass on Sundays, and I could have done it on Saturday, but I'm thinking, you know what, I'm going to do it on Sunday just to prove a point that I have the freedom to mow my grass on Sunday. I don't care what Brother Joe says. My motives are wrong, and I need to do it on Saturday instead of Sunday. See how that works? If I say, well, I know sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so doesn't approve of this, but I'm going to do it anyway. What's that? My motives. And my motives are wrong, and God sees what? Our hearts, and God sees all those things. And so I always have to ask, why am I doing the thing that I feel like I need to do? Listen, there are a lot of things in life that are, that are, 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 are joyous and are, are, are open and we have this freedom to do it. But I always have to ask this thing. We, we all know what the things are because we've heard them and, and maybe you've heard them. And we all know what those things are. It's not just mowing grass on Sunday. It's if I have a glass, if I have a glass of wine or should I even go shopping on Sunday? All that, we've, we know what they are. So I ask myself, what's my motive not how far can I go. And what happens is that I'm putting the needs of the other person first and I'm checking my motives. Jerome O'Connor says this, through fear, the weak would have been forced into, uh, forced the community into a self-imposed ghetto. In other words, the weak, people with the weak conscience would be like, <gasps> we need to hide out. Stay away from the temple. Don't go anywhere near the temple. Don't even touch the temple walls. Stay, hide out in this ghetto. So the weak would have had us do that. And then he says, but, but the destructive use of freedom, he said, the strong would have committed to the church a pattern of behavior indistinguishable from the environment. So the strong would have said, you know what? Going to the temple is no big deal. We're going to go. And people are like, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. But what are you doing here? I know that God's nothing at all. And so there's no difference in living. And so what Paul does in his pastoral genius is we have something to learn from each other. The weak and the know-it-alls. We learn from each other. And what happens is we can inform one another and maybe we can pull some people from that, that, uh, the, the, uh, the hole that some non-true things have on them. Like if you, if you see a ladder this week, would you walk under it, please? Would you do that? Would you go home and knock your salt shakers over and just do that? Would you step on the cracks in the sidewalk on the way out of here? Would you just do that, right? We know, right? We know this thing. And so what the, what the strong, that's what the strong were doing is say, you do that. And the weak would be like, oh, no, no, I can't step over the crack. I can't step over the crack. And Paul's like, we have something to learn from each other. Just walk. If you hit a crack, it's not a big deal. You don't have to avoid them, and you don't have to purposely step on them. See both sides of the argument? Just walk. Just be normal. Just be normal. Test your motives, not your limits. Romans 14 says, therefore, do not let what you know is good to be spoken of as evil. Why is something good spoken of as evil? Because you are destroying someone in the process. You are using your freedom, which is good, but it's not restrained by love, and you're doing something that is destroying something else. There's a big difference between being served a turkey that was cooked in white wine or a turkey that was offered to a god. There's a big difference. Paul says, eat the first one, 
And if your conscience won't let, allow you to eat the second one, don't. That's what ruins our soul. It ruins our relationship with God. You know, forbearance is to be like Jesus. Look what uh, Romans 15 says. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who have insulted you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Jesus did not even please himself. Love, Paul says in, Roman, in uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 3, is how we know God and how we are known by God. You know, there's that old saying, your rights end where my nose begins. Right there is where your rights ends. But for the believer, our rights end where the cross begins. Our rights end where the cross begins because that's the forbearance of Jesus. That we just, we just give up and we put up and we shut up and we show up and we do all the stuff. Because why? Because of Jesus. So I don't demand my way. I don't demand that you see it my way. I don't demand that life is all about me. But what I do is I say, Jesus, forbear these things so I can do that too. I don't have to impose my rules on you and you don't have to impose them on me. We can live and love and love each other. And, but it's, it's about forbearance. It's about giving up the right that we have to do the thing that we so want to do. But at the same time, we love one another. You know what it's called? It's called surrender. That's what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to surrender. Paul is reminding us in 1 Corinthians 8 that we are to be aware of other people. We just are. How how are we aware of other people? We get to know them. We know where they are spiritually. And we have to be very careful that once I know something, that I don't force someone else to do it who's not there yet. Listen, we're all at different places in in the faith. I am so glad that we don't get report cards that are posted on the wall on our Christian faith. Oh, you have a 3.5. You're a 1.0. Woo! We got some remedial classes. That's not how God... But we so often do that with one another. We say, wow, you're the 4.0 and I'm a little better than the 2.0. Guess what? God doesn't do that. At the foot of the cross... We're just, it's level ground. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're in Christ, you're in. If you're, you're loved by God, you're forgiven of your sins. Because it was love that sent Jesus to the cross, it's love that dictates our lives as well. Would you, for those things in your life that you can say, I know this is nothing, would you just do a, a heart evaluation with the Lord and say, am I, am I doing this out of love? Am I doing this? Are my motives pure? Or am I just really testing my limits? You know, for there was a trend for a while, uh, cussing preachers. <laughs> Somebody asked me one time what my worst fear was in preaching. And my worst fear is, and I'm going to do it now that I'm going to say it, is letting a cuss word fly by mistake. I've gotten close. I think I might have done it a couple times. You can't ever get that back. Zipper you can pull up. Like, no, nope, it's the cuss word. And there was a trend for a while about cussing preachers. They would let words fly during the sermons. Why? Because it was their right? Because it was their... But they were destroying people in the process. 
It wasn't cool. It's not cool to cuss when you're preaching the word of God. No matter what, you may think it's your right, you may, but you're not acting in love. They're pushing their limits. And, and Paul would say, just give that up. Is it that important to prove a point that you can cuss in your preaching or you're harming someone who maybe just for the first time has gone three hours without letting a word fly out <laughs> and you just took them all the way back? What if we were known for our forbearance of love? That just because I have the right to do it doesn't mean I need to do it. Or I look at, individ- I look at situations individually and I say, because I can do this and you think you can do it as well, we can do this together, but I can't do that with this person over here because that would cause them to fall. See how that works? I don't have to make it a law for everybody, but I go case by case and I look at folks and I treat them and I love them. And I forbear, because that's what Jesus did with us. So as we pray, would you just, would you surrender? This is what separates the fans from the followers. The followers say, Jesus, I am not going to demand my way. I'm going to follow your way. The fans are, look at me, look at me. I don't care about you. But the followers of Jesus, well, we surrender. And sometimes that means, oftentimes that means surrendering our rights. I can do this. We're not talking immoral things. We're not talking sinful things. That's not at all what Paul's talking about. Those are the, those are the contrasting. This is that kind of place where, is it wrong? Not really. But is it helpful? Not really. Do I need to do it? Not really. Just to give up those things. Would you please stand and we're going to pray.